On the 10th of May 1996, two groups of climbers were making the push to the top of Mount Everest, the highest peak of the Himalayan mountains, and indeed, the world. In normal conditions, this is a difficult and dangerous climb, but on this particular day, a blizzard is on its way in. A boom of commercial climbers on the mountain means there are more people on the mountain than usual as well, slowing the climbers down. Inexperience from the climbers and commitment to the climb from the experts threatens the lives of 34 people that day. What happened up in the clouds on Mount Everest that May day in 1996, and would everyone make it out alive? Find out this week on Cheeky Tales. Welcome back, boy. Hey, 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 so we'll talk in English from now on. <laughs> Get rid of the simlish. How are you doing, Be? I'm good. How are you, boy? Yeah, I'm all right. How, how was your weekend? Uh, I am feeling very tired right now. I mm. played cricket and then mowed. Oh, yes. I, I played two games of cricket today. Mm. That's not where I was going. With, how, 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 what, what, I'm setting you up for why we're here. What's going on? What's going on with this week's episode? Well, it's strange because we've been here before to record this exact episode, mm. haven't we? Yes, was that, have. what, two nights ago on I, Friday? I may know this story now. <laughs> yeah. This time John knows the story. So what happened was we I made a very rookie error. Oh, we, uh, so you actually know what happened? No, I don't know how it happened. Oh, okay. But the rookie error. So we, we've, we spent an hour and a half recording. We finished recording. And then I'm like exporting the files to be able to import them to the editing software and on my other PC and edit. And I go, oh... And I never do this. I'm like, oh, I'll just play it back, see what it, what it sounds like. I just had this gut feeling. Played it back, horrifically distorted. You can hear our voices, but there's this like distortion over the top. Couldn't do anything to fix it. Something happened in the record and it just got completely messed up. And so I have attempted uh, about eight practice recordings before you got here. <laughs> and now I'm not touching a thing. So this week's going to be a little different just because of the technical issue. So what are we doing this week? We're, you've already pre-recorded the story again. Yes. So I sat alone and recorded. Very strange experience. <laughs> Were you dressed? Uh, yeah. Okay. Just you might have done it. No, I didn't. Um, I didn't get risque. down to my most comfortable. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I sat and recorded on my own, and that was an incredibly weird experience. Um. Yeah, so there is actually a version of this story with just me doing commentary <laughs> that will never get released because it was awful. <laughs> but yeah, that's um, that's where we're at. We're here for round two of recording this episode. Yep. Which I would know the story of, so yeah. this is going to be interesting and fun. So, yeah, so again, what is the plan? We're just going to listen to the pre-recording and then we're going to... Yeah, so it's like we're listening to the podcast ourselves and, and then, then just, just talking about it. Doing commentary. <laughs> So you might notice it's a bit like on off with the commentary, yeah. but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying something new. Are you, boy? Uh, yeah, I honestly don't know how this is going to yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess all I can do is hand off to myself to begin the story. <laughs> so let's get into it. Most people would know that Mount Everest is the world's highest mountain above sea level, sitting at 8,849 metres. It's located on the Tibet-Nepal border, with the border itself running across the summit. Due to the nature of the mountain being on the border, there are two routes for mountaineers to climb, the southeast ridge from the Nepalese side and the north ridge route from the Tibetan side. Most climbers will use the southeast ridge ascent, 
as it's better mapped and easier to get a permit from Nepal than it is from Tibet or China. Everest was first identified as the tallest mountain in the world during the 1850s, but gained notoriety during the golden age of alpinism, which sounds very similar to the heroic era of uh, polar exploration from my last episode. Again, quite possibly named by the people that were there. During this era, it was questionable whether it could even be climbed due to the height of the mountain and the unknown ability of the human body. Throughout the next few decades, many more mountains were conquered, and people began to believe it may be possible to conquer the big one. Due to this period of exploration of other mountains, as well as World War I, serious attempts weren't made until the 1920s on Everest. A number of expeditions were attempted, however it wasn't until Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay made the summit in 1953 that the mountain was finally summited. They had done so using the southeast ridge route, And so, the last, most technically challenging part of the Southeast Ridge would be named the Hillary Step. In some ways, that's a massive screw you to Tenzing Norgay, who does not have a feature of a mountain named after himself. Yeah, so there you go. That's uh, part one of the story, boy. (laughs) You were having a great time having to listen to that. Couldn't stop yourself laughing. No, I couldn't. Because I I remembered one of the jokes I made (laughs) during the recording, and I do not want to repeat it. Yeah, we made some awful jokes. (laughs) But... Um, I don't really have anything to say because I said all my piece in there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you and your little commentary. And my little it. commentary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing that stands out is, I guess, yeah, Tenzing Norgay. No one really names anything after him, do they? No. Um, I, I guess one of the interesting things is it was quite recent, like maybe, what, 100 years ago? That it was first, found to be tall? Yeah. 1850s. No, no, the ascent was in the 1920s, wasn't it? Oh, that's when they started trying. Trying to, yeah, like, yeah, really. The first, the first people to get to the top were only in the 1950s. Yeah, which is really not that long. Yeah, it's only ago. 70 years ago. Yeah, I thought it's been happening for yeah, no, ages. Yeah, so like this story, the 1996 story, only happened like you know 40 years after they'd been up there for the mm. first time. Well, yeah, so they've been doing yeah. it for 40 years. They had some practice and stuff like that, but yeah, no, it's yeah. I, I mean, just, one, I just assume people have been doing it for. A long time. No. Um, and they haven't been doing it in any massive number for very long either. Like if you're the, I saw a, um, a graph of like climbers on the mountain each year. Yeah. And it just sort of like ticks along, getting a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. Oh, there it goes. Do you have a total of how many climbers? I think the total that have climbed to date is less than 5,000. Yeah, that's not really, that's just a small group of people to be, yeah. uh, like is that the people who have, Climbed it and survived or just... Cl- Summited. So, so made the summit. But not necessarily came back. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not a lot of people to... No. ...share that space with. Mm. Back into it. You're not going to transition every time like that, are you? I might. Oh, no. For the southern route, the trip begins in the capital of Nepal, Kathmandu, where trekkers will fly to Lukla, the nearest town to Everest with an airport. From there, trekkers will hike to Everest Base Camp over eight days, with a few days rest for acclimatisation. It's very important that climbers get acclimatised to the altitude because the human body actually needs to react to the fact that there's less air and less oxygen. Um, Otherwise, you'll just immediately go into uh, oxygen deprivation and pretty much just die on the spot when they attempt the summit. Over the next three to six weeks of their trek, climbers will then follow a process to take supplies up the mountain to the next three camps. Finally, trekkers will go from base camp to camp two on one day, then camp two to camp three on the next, three to four on another day. Everest Camp 4 sits at 8,000 metres above sea level, which is the beginning of the death zone, 
which is pretty self-explanatory from the name, but I will explain a little bit more of that in a few minutes. From here, trekkers will attempt to get their final rest before the summit attempt. Death zone. Katmandu. Katmandu. I think that Sean's doing enough screaming <sighs> for all of us. This was one thing that we talked about in the first recording, wasn't it? Yes, and it still, it still gets yeah. me. I also say tortilla sometimes mm. just to annoy Sean. So is there another town nearby? So there's Katmandu. And, and then you Kim go- Katmandu. You know what's hilarious is you made that exact joke when we last recorded and I, I fell for it then and I fell for it now. Oh, I do. It's too good not to. Just muppeted me. Nasty boy. Nasty boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, as soon as I started saying Katmandu, I remembered the joke and I had to get it in there again. <laughs> it's too good not to. Death zone. So yeah, like, death zone. Lack of oxygen. Yeah, that's coming up. Didn't you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Couple of minutes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's actually like right now. It's right now. It's been thirty seconds. <laughs> so the attempt on the summit usually begins at or around midnight, and will take up to twelve hours to complete. Due to the conditions on the mountain, climbers want to be reaching the summit no later than one p.m., which is why they leave so early in the morning. After 1pm, it becomes increasingly likely that climbers won't make it back down before nightfall, where the conditions generally deteriorate to a point where the cold and wind will quickly kill them. Aside from the dangers of the weather and the obvious dangers of the terrain at that height, there is the death zone that I mentioned before. The death zone begins at about 8,000 metres above sea level and is the height at which humans can no longer survive an extended stay without supplemental oxygen. Um, essentially, the air pressure the air pressure is so low that there's not enough oxygen to allow the human body to function. Um, you know, you obviously need a certain amount of oxygen. We're used to that at sea level, and so this is the reason climbers use oxygen tanks on the final summit attempt. Uh, and the effects of time in the death zone are considered to be the reason for most deaths in high altitude mountaineering. The effects of the lack of oxygen are the loss of vital functions, confusion, weakness, and poor decision making. It's pretty clear that these are things you really don't want to have when you're trying to climb the world's tallest mountain after no sleep and multiple weeks of being on this mountain. So uh, I guess you're referring to hypoxia. It, yeah, hypoxia is basically the lack of oxygen. Lack of oxygen. And yeah. It just makes you do, do dumb things, doesn't it? Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's air crash record, like uh, black box recordings from cockpits of people, of yeah. pilots, I should say. Suffering from hypoxia because something's gone wrong and they're just... Was it the Helios Air one where everyone just, the plane was just cruising along and everyone's like, why is that plane just cruising along? And it was because they had no oxygen, so they all just passed out. Not even not even to the point of passing out, like the the fact that like the plane could be nosediving into the ground mm. and that everything's telling them to pull up, this is what's happening. And just because of the lack of oxygen, they're just... Just staring. Staring. Yeah. Like can't... Pro- like it's have a the scary... Pro- have the process to go, oh, like, you know, I need to do this to not die or, yes, like hypoxia yeah. is a scary thing. Like I've heard terrible stories of it. And an important thing to note about it is that you don't really know that it's happening to you. Yeah. You, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. You've got no idea. You just sort of, someone has to either tell you or you die. Or you like get, there's no. Or, or you get oxygen. Yeah. There's no like in between state. And Mount Everest is not a place you want to have that confusion. and. No, it is not. Um, like, cause especially I'm in sure the last not, bit. Yeah. I'm sure it's not just a smooth path, a path up to, no, not like Kosciuszko. It's got a walkway that goes to the top. 
I mounted Kosciuszko, and that's me. <laughs> mounted it. Got on top, and I stood there. <laughs> um, no, it, it, Kosciuszko is the easiest. It's like basically it, a walk. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah path that goes. There's to the no top. yeah. It, it, well, it was a road at one point, so yeah. it's literally just a walk. And I don't imagine Everest is like that. I mean, no. imagine Everest is like a little goat track up the side of a side of a mountain with valleys and yeah. cliffs and yeah. snow and wind. Not and the most technical climb. Okay. Um, but it is difficult. Do you know what the most technical climb is? No. I want to say K2, but I don't think that's oh, true. Oh, yeah. I forgot about K2. I actually don't know where that is. Is that part it's, of the seven? No, well, no not seven. Not seven, one of the seven summits. That's uh, the highest peak in each continent. Yeah. Is it one of, there's a, like a sisters or something, isn't there? Like a, hmm? there's a bunch of ones that are very close to. Yeah. So all 14 of the 8,000 plus meter mountains are in either the Himalayas or the other one. <laughs> yep. Back into it. Oh, don't say that. Back into it. So what was going on in 1996 that made this different to any other year? So in the years since the 1953 summit by Hillary and Norgay, mountaineering had come a long way, and more and more people were attempting the summit of Everest each year. During the early 90s, a crop of new companies began offering commercial climbing experiences. Essentially, these companies would offer experienced climbers as guides who would lead a group of less experienced paying customers up the mountain. Of course, this was done with the help of paid Sherpas as well, uh, with the Sherpas doing a lot of the preparation for the climb ahead of the main group. So pretty much Sherpas would do the laying of equipment, they would um, take food up and down the mountain, they would take oxygen bottles up and down, Um, they'd do a lot of the course laying, so they'd do the climbing and laying down ropes that people would come along and then follow later on. Pretty much all of the hard work, really, um, of the climb. And then along come the paying customers to just sort of do it themselves. Um, pretty much that's the that's the way that these companies would operate. Sherpas are locals, right? Yeah. They don't live on the mountain, but they're- No. I actually don't know. You would have thought that I'd look up what a Sherpa is because I just kind of get it. But you're right. I actually don't know what they are. Yeah. I don't think they're the people that live on the mountain. They're just- Yeah. They live nearby and this is their job. Yeah. Maybe that's your job. Your job is to go up and just climb, climb a mountain. Everest. Take inexperienced idiots yeah. up a mountain. Yeah. How was like your, maybe they are locals. How, how was your day at work today, honey? Oh, dude fell off a cliff and died. Yeah. <laughs> Guy just got hypoxia. I didn't notice. And then he yeah. fell off a mountain. And he just walked straight off. So I just went home. <laughs> Climbers would pay on average around $50,000 each to climb the mountain. So this was largely made up of fees to get up the mountain, um, get to the mountain get the gear that they needed, the time spent on the mountain acclimatizing. Um, But mostly it was for all of the people that were taking part in helping them get there. So paying all the Sherpas, paying the guides, um, getting their licenses to climb Everest, all these sorts of things. So you can imagine with that much money involved in each climbing group, um, you know, $50,000 per person and you got a climbing group of eight, that's $400,000 worth of climbing going on for just one expedition. I got one thing to say to that. A ka-ching. <laughs> a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Yeah. I've got to look at you for when you're talking because so I know it's recording and it's Yeah. <laughs> Which one is it? You could do some uh, sweet ventriloquism. We'll just. In 1996, there were two groups in particular that decided to ascend the summit together on the 10th of May. One group was from a company called Adventure Consultants, which was led by Rob Hall. Rob had started the Adventure Consultants Company in 1992 
and had pioneered the commercial climbing model on Mount Everest. He and his company were considered the leaders in the market. So this is a guy who has tons of experience climbing. He has started a company to try and get people up the mountain, um, giving them the experience for a much, you know, with, with much less experience buy-in. Um, a very serious guy, very renowned in the industry. The second group was from a newcomer to the industry, Mountain Madness, which has a much better name, and was led by Scott Fisher. Scott had only started the company that year, and this climb was to be the first with paying customers for the company. Radical <laughs> Mountain Madness! Yeah! <laughs> Great name. <laughs> Love it. Love it to bits. Oh. Second time we've made these jokes. Love it. <laughs> it's still funny. <sighs> the commentary that I cut out was that Scott Fisher, hot boy, just oh, like right. James Hunt. Yeah. Bit Blonde a, hair, bit blue of eyes, movie star, good looks. Mm. Mm, that's what they all said Mountain about him. Madness. Mountain Madness. Radical. Do this and then we'll ride down the mountain on a snowboard and jump in the surf. I'm sure he was, was he married, you know? No. Wasn't married? No, I don't know. Oh, okay. I said, I'm sure he was a hit with the ladies because, you know, movie star, good looks. Yeah. He owns a business, Mountain Madness. Yeah. Let me take you up, Everest, baby. So he might have owned a ma- uh, owned Mountain Madness. Not good with the money. Oh, really? The, the company struggled a bit or he just spent it on stupid things? The, the company was brand new. He just wasn't great with money. Yeah, okay. So he had to start a business. Was, he, was he good at climbing? Yeah. Okay, well, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it's good enough to start a company, I suppose. So Hall and Fisher were actually friends, um, but there was obviously a competitive nature to their businesses. And despite working together on the mountain that day, there was sure to be some drive to beat each other. Obviously, you've got these two companies that are vying for this new market, only a few years old, uh, one company doing their first ever climb. You're going to want a good experience for your climbers because getting that good experience is going to mean more climbers the next year. Both companies' expeditions started out with eight clients. However, both had a client decide not to make the final summit push before the 10th, leaving 14 paying customers between the two groups. In total, there would be 34 people climbing together that day, with a collection of Sherpas and guides also climbing from both companies. There was even two journalists making the climb, one with each company, who were doing stories on how commercial climbing was changing the way that people made it up Everest. So yeah, that's your groups. You got 14 people paying and a buttload of extras. Something you said was interesting. Um, the com- like the commercial commercialism of it is was brand new for the time. Yeah. Like uh, I guess those companies still exist. Yeah. That now. still happens now, yeah. Mainly like what if doc- is it what if.com? No, that's a booking company. Ah. What's the one? Oh, Red Balloon. Red Balloon would be kind of like that, wouldn't it? I think so. But they kind of- um, Red Balloon is like you go to Red Balloon to, to find, book with those people. To yeah. find Mountain Madness yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Radical. I just That's something I didn't think of last time was yeah. that this this was new. Like this yeah. adventure experience kind of company, I guess. Well, so I said that um, adventure consultants were like the leading people in the industry. They were only four years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this whole industry, four years old. And yeah, well, I know these companies were solely based around Mount Everest. They didn't do any other. I honestly don't know. Okay, I would assume not, considering the amount of planning and time it takes. But right, yeah. yeah, I mean, considering you can only really climb Everest for about two months a year, 
Um, oh, really? Yeah, you can climb it in the spring and in the autumn. So they, about they work for two months and then have 10 months off. I guess. So considering they were paying customers and not experienced professionals, there was a lot of inexperience in the climbers. For adventure consultants, only one of the eight customers had ever climbed a mountain over 8,000 metres, and for mountain madness, there were a further two that had never climbed above 8,000. This would mean that many were not used to the effects of the air at that height and would need extensive guidance to make the climb and to survive. Some climbers of note from both teams are listed here, as I'm going to mention them a lot as we get through, and it's good to give you an idea of who they are before you hear them again. So obviously, I've already talked about Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, the two leaders, but then you've got guides for both companies. So you've got Mike Groom and Andy Harris, who are guides for adventure consultants. They're hired to keep the paying customers moving, get them up the mountain, and get them back down safely. On the other side, for Mountain Madness, you've got Neil Beidelman and Anatoly Bukarev. So you've got Mike Groom, Andy Harris, Neil Beidelman, Anatoly Bukarev. I have said Bukarev different twice, it's Bukarev, but there you go. In terms of paying clients, you've got Lou Kashishki. Lou had climbed six of the seven summits, which are the highest mountains on each of the seven traditional continents. He had promised his wife he would only make one attempt on the summit. Yasuko Namba. Namba was attempting to reach the top of all seven summits, and if successful, would be the oldest woman to have reached the top and the first Japanese climber to do so. Beck Weathers. He had been climbing for 10 years and was making an attempt on the seven summits. However, he'd never gone above 8,000 metres during any of his climbs. In addition to them, there was a five-man team from a Taiwanese expedition climbing on the southern side of the mountain that day, as well as a six-man team on the northern side from the Indo-Tibetan Police Force. Yeah, the police are just going up, seeing what's going on. Yeah, why? Why? I don't know. Couldn't find out why. Really? Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Why the would poli- you just... Hey, is there any crime up here? Hey, there's no crime happening today. Let's go for a stroll up the mountain, mate. <laughs> I wonder if it's to make sure that people aren't climbing the mountain and then coming back down the other way. Surely uh, it's not that. Surely it can't be that. I mean... If that's how they're doing it and crossing the border, I mean... Maybe they deserve to get across. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if it's to find dead bodies. Oh, you reckon? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a lot up there, isn't there? A lot. Do you go into that? I don't think I do, no. Yeah, there's a lot of dead bodies. A lot of dead bodies. On the northern side, there's a valley that you have to climb over that's called the Valley of Rainbow Clothes. Bright colours. Bright colours, that was it. The yeah. Valley of Bright bright Colours. Just because, because people have fallen off and... There's like a whole bunch of dead bodies at the bottom of it and in all different clothing. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah. And then you've got green boots. Green boots, the most famous of the dead bodies. Mm-hmm. So typically what happens if you die on Everest is if you're high enough, they can't get you back down. So you just stay there. Um, and I didn't mention it all in this, but there was a, a climber in the 1920s that died. Might do a story on him later. Um like another episode, but he was trying for the summit in 1924 and um, he died and they didn't find his body until 1999. That's ridiculous. That's 70 odd years. Yeah. And there was photos of the people that found him standing next to his body. And I'm not going to put them on socials because it's a dead body, but it looks like he just died yesterday. It's really weird. Yeah. The skin's oh. all still normal. He's still got all his hair and everything. We, we've had a dead body on our socials before. Have we? Yeah, the skeletons in the lake were real. True. I still can't believe that. <laughs> I cannot believe that in a movie they put actual skeletons in a lake with a person. It was cheaper. I know. it was. Che- it's still gross. And they didn't tell the actors. No. Gross. Uh, um, yeah, that's probably... 
apart from the whole it being very dangerous. Yeah. I don't think I want to climb Everest because I don't want to see the I a mean, lot you, of dead bodies. You'd yeah. have you'd have to see them as you're climbing, yeah. right? It's no yeah. way you could make the climb without seeing them. Yeah. They're just there. Like they're just <sighs> just off the side of the path that you're walking along. They're like in little cavelets and stuff. Yeah, I that's Yeah. I'd say it's 50-50 why I would never want to climb Everest just because it's dangerous and the other half is Yeah, I don't want to see dead bodies. Especially if they're not like they're that fresh. They're not like skeletons. Well, they're not fresh, but they've been preserved yeah. in the cold and Yeah. Yeah. That's uh not for me. No, thank you. Not at all. As part of the final preparation, both groups decided on a turnaround time of 1pm. This time needs to be set as the deadline for climbers to make the summit. Otherwise, they would turn around and head back down the mountain. This time really needs to be set in stone for safety, as climbers only have a limited oxygen resource. Uh, and as the day gets longer and the weather gets worse and worse, lower temperatures, higher winds, and then, of course, darkness setting in. It makes climbing very, very dangerous if you don't have a turnaround time that you solidly stick to. So essentially, if they haven't made the summit at this point, they need to turn around, walk back down the mountain. So that's it. That is the situation in 1996 that led up to the 10th of May. So you've got all your players in place, all the plans are laid, all the work's been done to get up the mountain. Oh, (laughs) Toshibuki. It's just the way you said darkness (laughs) Darkness. <laughs> the darkness. What <laughs> comes for you? <laughs> blah, 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 the darkness. I don't know what that is. That's meant to be what Dracula. That's meant to be Dracula. Blah, blah, blah. I come to drink your blood. The darkness. There you go. I got it. Um, <laughs> oh, he loosely got it, mate. Got it. <laughs> That's pretty loose. Uh, well, before we continue, I think we've got to really emphasize the point that the one o'clock turnaround is very yes. critical. Yeah, I, I think... Um, That's really the key point in all of this is that they had to leave at 1 p.m. If they were not, sorry, they had to stop and turn around around, at 1 p.m. if they were not done. Um, It's kind of like when- um, Well, there's more than one reason. You've got- Yeah. I was trying to think of a funny thing to say. Yeah, you've got light conditions, the darkness. Oh, shush boogie. The oxygen supply. Oh, yeah, that's one thing I didn't mention. Um, And the, I guess, weather conditions, like- um, I don't know if you've ever been out on like Morton Bay or anything like that. You get out there early morning, it's nice and calm. Um, there's no wind. And yeah. then later in the morning and even into the afternoon, the wind picks up and yeah. the conditions get worse. So I'm assuming it's going to be same on the mountain. Uh, and hence, like you said earlier on, they leave at 12 and climb up there and... Off they go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, very much so. Yeah. The weather is the main thing. Yeah. Um, the weather can change really quickly up there at night. So... Yeah, that's why the, the 1 p.m. is so solid. How do, how do they... Oh, I'm assuming they get, like, weather updates over radio at, like, the base camp four and stuff like that, right? Because um, they wouldn't have, like... Yeah. Nowadays, they've got, like... Would you have phone reception up there? No, I wouldn't think so. So you wouldn't be able to even get, like, um, weather updates on a phone or anything like that. Yeah. It'd still probably be very much radio-orientated. Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, from the base camps. Yeah, um, right. So they'd be able to radio up and say, hey, look, there's a storm coming. Yeah. So you know that one o'clock time turnaround you got? It's actually now like 11.30 yeah. in the morning. Maybe like, turnaround. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is other climbers. They'll just be like, oh, bloody right. cold up here. Yeah, right. Yeah. So 
So the two teams from Mountain Madness and Adventure Consultants Radical. would begin their climb at 11.45 p.m. This was standard. Uh, it would allow them to make the 12-hour climb to the summit with plenty of time to return before sundown that evening. The lead Sherpas for both expeditions were sent ahead to fix ropes on the more technical parts of the climb, known as the South Summit, which sat at 8,750 metres above sea level, and the Hillary Step, which was 40 metres higher at 8,790. So they're like right towards the end. There's maybe 100 metres of climbing, 50-odd you know, left in this climb. Um, the Hillary Step especially is famous for its difficulty, at least on the climb, it's essentially like a solid rock face that they had to climb up and over in order to get up to the next level of the, the climb. I was going to ask, when you say technical, do you know, yep. can you explain that any further? Or Yeah, so they for the Hillary Step and the South Summit, they're both things that you can't really get over if you don't have massive amounts of experience without like ropes to climb up. Right, so they're pretty much climbing up a rope to get yeah. over. Yeah, so the okay. the Hillary step is literally just like a big hunk of rock that they have to just kind of get up and over. Yeah, okay. And it's like a sheer wall. There's no way around it or anything? No. Um, interesting tidbit about the Hillary step, though. Mm. Um, in 2015, there was an earthquake uh, and it is no more. Oh, is it gone? Yeah. So it's it's now more of the Hillary staircase, they call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, so it just dislodged? Got shaken to bits, big rock fell off, and huh. now it's just like a kind of smooth walk up. Oh. And weirdly, the Nepalese government are like, you know, it's there. It's fine. And everyone's like, what do you mean? Is it though? What? They they just deny that it's been destroyed. Why? I have no idea. And they're telling climbers like, don't you talk about the Hillary step. Don't you do it. First rule about Hillary step. Don't talk about the Hillary step. <laughs> so for the first six hours of the climb, not really anything happened. Um, it was 5.30 a.m. The climbers had made their progress up but they're in the death zone now. So they've gotten into the area where they have to start using the supplemental oxygen that they're carrying with them. This immediately starts a timer on how long they have to complete the ascent and return back to Camp 4 because they have to get back below 8,000 metres. If they're going to run out of oxygen, they're going to have issues. Both teams are following set ropes on the climb that guide the way and both Fisher and Hall are at the back of the group assisting slower climbers from their companies. So the most experienced at the back, helping these guys up the mountain. Which is the way it should be. It's, it's just funny because when you say they're assisting the slower climbers, I just imagine yeah. like a football scrum where they're just behind <laughs> just them, push just pushing them up. them up. Get up there. Go and get. <laughs> By the way, you can kind of tell in this recording how much I'm trying to give exposition of my own because I was on my own. So I'm like, I've got to sound like I'm just talking to someone. <laughs> That's why it sounds a bit weird. At 10am, the lead climbers from Mountain Madness had made it to the South Summit, the first of the two most technical parts that I mentioned before. Neil Biderman, the, uh, one of the guides from Mountain Madness, was the first one to make it to this point, and he realised that they were behind schedule by about an hour. To compound that issue, he found that the head Sherpas that had been sent ahead, the, uh, the head Sherpa from both groups were sent ahead at the start to lay ropes on these more difficult parts, they found that they hadn't been able to do that. One of the Sherpas had come down with altitude sickness and was found on the side of the, wo- side of the path just sort of spewing his guts up. Real gross stuff, but essentially he wasn't able to get ahead and he was never able to get ahead. So they didn't have any of these ropes fixed on the more technical parts by the time the group got there. So 
Now, Neil Biderman and Anatoly Bukharev have to do this for the group. So they start doing this. Um, they start laying the ropes. They climb these more technical parts. But as they start working, climbers start backing up behind them. So you find that the more people are backing up, the longer it's going to take each person to get over these this south summit and eventually the Hillary step as well, which is just adding to the amount of time that this climb is going to take, compounding this issue each time someone gets there. At the same time, at the back of the group, Luka Shishki was looking up at the group summiting above him and he could think of nothing else other than climbing that mountain and standing at the top. Unfortunately for Lou, pretty much at this exact moment, he collapsed. Uh, everything went quiet. Everything went silent. He said all he could hear was his heartbeat. And in his words, it was the call of the heart, my wife's heart, calling out to be heard. I looked up at the summit, at a place I would never be, and visualised myself up there. I would never stand on that place. Lou would turn around and make the trek back down to Camp 4 alone. Good on you, Lou. Gutsy call. Know your limits. Yeah, no, no, it's gutsy call. I uh, res- mad respect. Yeah. Whether you're drinking, climbing a mountain, or eating tacos, know your limits. He, he was the one, this was the last one of the seven, was he? No, that was Yasuko Namba. Oh, I'm in mean, the last of the seven summits. Okay, I thought. Um, no. Okay. No, no. Cuts are cool. Mad yep. props. So did you actually uh, find out what happened, like, with the Sherpas? There was the one thrown up. Did he just yeah. go back? No, he survived. He just went back down there to was, the camp? There was one Sherpa who died from the expedition, mm-hmm. but it wasn't Probably related. Not. Well, no, not related to the ah. um, going up. Um, he got, they call it HACE um, or HAPE. It's like high altitude something, um, high altitude pulmonary edema or something. Um, yeah, basically you, you go up high, you get ill, and you just don't recover and die. Wasn't the guy throwing his guts up, was it? No. Okay. No, he just had altitude sickness. Yeah, so they right. brought him back down. He was right. As time ticked past 12 p.m. and closer and closer to the turnaround time of 1 p.m., Bartleman and Bukriev made their way over to the Hillary Step, the last of the technical parts of the climb, laying lines for those that followed. Climbers, as I said, were still backing up behind them, and Bartleman began to think that only the fastest climbers would make the summit that day. As the time expired on their 1 p.m. deadline for the summit, not a single climber had reached the peak. At 1.07 p.m., Bukriev became the first of the group to reach the top, with Bidelman not far behind. They began to assist other climbers up. However, not many were even close to the pair when they summited. Not good. They've hit their 1pm deadline and they've done nothing about it. They didn't even make the summit before 1pm. No one made the summit before No one. one made the summit. So they all turned around and... Uh, and went home. Went home. Yeah. Anyway, um, listen Thanks to us listening. on socials. Yep. Uh, No, that's not what they did, boy. Despite having six very experienced people at the front, well, some at the back, they didn't turn around. Um, They broke their own curfew. As time ticked over to 2pm, Bukriev made the decision to descend the mountain as he was starting to feel the effects of altitude sickness. Due to his personal beliefs around the impact of supplemental oxygen causing complacency, he'd not been using any supplemental oxygen. Not smart, Mr. Bukriev. You're supposed to be a guide. Not smart. Yeah, he's meant to be helping people, right? That's and right. He's just decided to go, whatevs, uh, I don't feel well. I'm going home. I'm having a sickie. Yeah, and um, the, the no supplemental oxygen. Yeah, oh, that's craziness. Yeah, yeah. That's so, so odd decision. So he's been going for 13 hours. Yeah. 
it will in the death zone. Yes. So not enough oxygen to support mm. human yep. beings. He's just been doing it. Whatever. Pretty impressive that he's actually doing I mean, it right. Obviously, he's yeah. acclimatized quite well to the conditions, mm. but and he's, he's helping. Is he? He was at the front. Right? Yeah, he was helping. Like, so he's laying the lines and stuff. He's as well. working. He's so he's doing difficult parts of the climb. That's ridiculous. Yeah, he cops a lot of guff for that. Oh, afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So right. people are like, "What is this guy doing? Why does he not have supplemental oxygen?" Mm-hmm. Now he's like feeling sick, got to turn around. No, yeah, left all yeah. by himself. Yeah, so people people lay blame on him for what happened in some aspects. Like he's part of the issue. Um, might not be fair. Um, we'll see his story continue a little bit later. Was anything changed from that then? Was anything changed? Mm. Um, yeah. So I say it at the end in the recording, so enjoy hearing it twice. But okay. um, I'll just leave it for then. Leave all right. Oh, <laughs> are you well, ready for that wild woo. twist? Ooh, what a twist. Yeah, we totally blew that out. <laughs> at 2.10pm, Mountain Madness leader Scott Fisher was only just reaching the Hillary step. Rob Hall, the leader of Adventure Consultants, reaches the summit around this time. He radioed back to base that the conditions were very windy and very cold. So Hall is at the top at two. Scott Fisher is still back down at the Hillary step about 50 metres of height below. By 2.30pm, Bukriev had begun his descent back down the mountain. Also around this time, Yasuko Namba reached the summit and achieved her goal of climbing all seven summits. In doing so, she'd also become the oldest woman to have ever climbed Mount Everest. All Mountain Madness clients had now made the summit. Bartleman still remained at the top with them, However, he was finding it very difficult to get the summiteers to turn around and descend quickly. Good job, Yasuko. I guess that's an issue. Like, you've just spent 14-odd hours climbing a mountain. You pass the time when you're meant to leave. You get up there, wow, this is awesome. We we need to go now. I just got here. No, we we need to. Yeah, you need to turn around and leave. You need to piss off. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. I can. Yeah. Obviously, I see both sides, right? You. You've got this deadline to make it back safely. Yeah. But again, you've just spent all this time climbing. You want to enjoy it a bit, right? It's very easy for us sitting here to be like, oh, yeah. You just turn around and walk away. Yeah, no. You've spent $50,000. True. This is your shot at the top. Yep. It's been very days. easy. Yeah. It hasn't just been 14. It's been 14 hours since you left Base Camp 4. Yeah. It's been days, Jersey. You've been, uh, up, journey. There. You've been up there for months on the mountain. Yeah. Probably about two months. Yeah, very easy for us to All say right, it. That's your two minutes. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On your bike. Oh. Ride that snowboard back. A bike would be a quick way down. Yeah. Probably not safe. By 3.10pm, Bartleman had finally convinced the Mountain Madness group to descend. Despite being two full hours past the turnaround time, Scott was still making his way up the mountain. Other members of the Adventure Consultants team ran into Rob Hall and Doug Hansen on their way down. Doug Hansen was another client of Adventure Consultants. When ordered to descend, Doug Hansen shook his head, gestured to the summit, and continued climbing. Rob Hall refused the offer from the Sherpas to assist Hansen and continued on with them. So these two experienced guys, Scott and Rob, who are meant to be the leaders of these expeditions, are both still climbing towards the top at 310. That, to me, is insanity. This is poor decision-making by the leaders of these groups. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I'm glad you agree with yourself. <laughs> Good input, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, massive red flags. Yeah. Uh, I know it's your company and you want to be good for your company. I wonder, I don't think that's something you we went over last time. 
Mm. But you said earlier there were journalists. Like, yeah. I wonder how they portrayed. Yeah, I don't think it was a great article. Yeah. Yeah. No, but the, the journalists were there to sort of write articles about commercial climbing. And so there was a lot of uh, incentive, let's say, for- uh, To get them up there. Yeah, to get them up yeah. there and to get them up there experiencing it well. Probably contributed to the poor decision-making, would you say? I would say, yeah. Mm. One, of the, one of the journalists is actually quoted as saying, I'm pretty certain that my being there was a negative thing for this whole thing. Oh, at least he- well, at least they understand that. Like yeah. 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 He's not like, oh, that was bad, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. As the Mountain Madness group reached the south summit, Bartleman started to notice a storm brewing below them and realised that at best they would be entering poor visibility and high winds, and at worst, a full blown blizzard. In interviews with him that I saw, he states that this is the first time he felt genuinely concerned and the first time that he felt they were in real trouble. He also recounts that at this point, oxygen supplies had run low. Uh, and at that point, a client collapsed. The first client collapsed in their group, Sandy Hill. She was given a pep-up shot, which was uh, said to be steroids, but I think it was like adrenaline or something. And she would have to be dragged down the mountain by Bidelman. Surprisingly, despite being the first to collapse, Sandy Hill would survive. Um, so she went on to make a recovery and managed to make her way down the mountain. At 3.40pm, Scott Fisher has finally made the summit. This is two hours and 40 minutes after they were supposed to turn around and head back down. Following him, potentially as late as 3.50 or 4pm, was Doug Hansen and the adventure consultants leader, Rob Hall. So Sandy Hill's kryptonite is Snowy Mountain. Yeah, apparently. There you go. Good job. (laughs) Took me a minute to get that, but that was good. Thank you. Yep. Bravo. (laughs) Golf club. So you've heard this story already. Yeah, and it's, it's like uh, when I mentioned the weather earlier, like I'd heard this story before and I knew <laughs> something was coming. <laughs> you still shook your head at the fact that they were getting up there at like oh, 3.40, yeah. 3.50. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like it's, there's a, they know that there's that 1 p.m. turnaround time for yeah. a specific reason. Yeah. And they set it. They were the two that were like, yeah, let's do 1 p.m. 1 p.m. is a good they safe set time. It. And yeah. yet they got to 4 o'clock and yep. they've still- by this point, just they should be halfway get, back down. Yeah, they're just getting to the mountain yeah. now. And it's, yeah, it's four o'clock. It's three hours later. And they still just get to the summit and just go, we're just going to chill out here for a bit. Yeah. I think they did actually turn around pretty quickly. Oh, okay. However, it's still 4 p.m. and yeah. you're just getting there. Like you like, said, what are you doing? Should, uh, what was it, 12 hours to get? 12 hours to get there. Or should be six hours. hours to get back. Okay, yeah. So 12 hours to get there. So it gives you a 12 o'clock time. One o'clock's a turnaround time. You have your one hour to enjoy your view and yeah. six hours to get back. Yeah. So they should be halfway. Yeah. I, like you said, I'm still shaking my head. I, I don't believe it. At 4.15 PM, Rob Hall and Doug Hansen had made their way back to the Hillary step and were spotted by one of their lead guides, Mike Groom. Mike gave them the okay gesture with his hands. So sort of like a thumbs up or the, you know, the finger, the circle with the fingers up, um, gives them that sign because he wants to check in on them. And Rob responded to this in kind, saying, we're all good. Despite this, 15 minutes later, Hall would radio in that they'd run out of oxygen and needed some to be immediately brought to them from Camp 4 for rescue. Things are obviously starting to change very quickly at this point on the mountain, and everyone's still on the summit, we're going to struggle. Yup. That's all i got to say to that. That's all we need to say. Yup. Keep going, boy. I will. 
We're fast forwarding now three hours. So everyone's still on the mountain at this point. By 7pm, a group made up of climbers from both companies had made it to the South Coal, a feature of the mountain that sits at 7,920 metres. So they've finally descended out of the death zone, but only just. This group contained Mike Groom and Neil Beidelman. However, they were the only professional climbers amongst the remaining clients. So this is Mike Groom and Neil Beidelman, one from Adventure Consultants, which is Mike Groom, and one from Mountain Madness, which is Neil Beidelman. By this time, the storm's hitting in full force, and the team were not just affected by the cold and wind, but also a full loss of visibility. This meant they couldn't navigate, and on either side of the path they were walking on are drops. Essentially, they're going to fall off the mountain if they make a misstep at this point. On top of all this, they've run out of oxygen, and some of the group are starting to collapse and are unable to move themselves. With all this in mind, and despite knowing they were incredibly close to Camp 4, they make the decision to stop and to huddle together for warmth and to try to keep each other awake. So they're making this decision to just stay on the mountain now. They, they can't find the guide ropes. They can't climb. Scary stuff. Yeah, it would be quite scary in that situation, yeah. wouldn't it? No, no visibility. Yep. The spooky darkness. <laughs> it's cold. All the ghosts windy. are out. The boogeyman. I mean, what do you do in that situation? Do you what would yeah. what would you do? Would you huddle together and try and stay warm and wait out the blizzard, or would you just keep moving? Jeez, I don't know because it depends how hard it is to keep moving. So yeah. the the thing that I really need to stress is that they were on like a ridge. So yeah. if they step off the path too much, they just fall to their death. Yeah, right. Um. So yeah, like that they made the call to sit and huddle because one that the death fall mm-hmm. and two. Some of the group were just not able to move anymore. Yeah, yeah I forgot you said that. Like, that's just yeah. so strange to me that just you can't move. Like, yeah. being that cold. Yeah, that, that cold just, and that tired. That you just can't move. Yeah, because this is what, what did you say? It was 7 p.m.? This is 7 p.m. now. Uh, yeah, 7 p.m. now. Which is how many hours after they started? They left it like pretty much midnight. They left at midnight, yeah. So 15 hours later? Yeah. It's a is long that, time. that the maths? Yeah. And you got to remember like- it's also they're tired from previous days climbing. Too. True, true, true. Yeah, it's not just they're completely refreshed and yeah. recovered. They're- when they when they eventually move again, um, they actually in one of the things that I saw, they were like, "Yeah, we had to tell people just crawl. If you can't walk, crawl. Just move. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, scary stuff. Like let's just huddle up like penguins and make this. I, I would assume that would be the worst thing to do. I, I know what you said is like there's a a cliff face and yeah. a wrong step would mean a fall, but just being still in the cold, like I just imagine moving yeah. and keeping warm while moving would be yeah. ideal. You would, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a mountaineer. Neither am I. For three hours, that group huddled together in the dark and cold until at 10 p.m., the storm, which as I said, was a full-blown blizzard, had finally broken for long enough for the guides to get their bearings so they could see some other peaks and they could go, right, we know where we are. We know where we've got to go. And then the storm clears further and they can see Camp 4, which is just 200 metres away from where they'd been huddling. So they're within 200 metres this whole time. The 11 climbers that were huddled together had a chance for survival. However, two of them were completely, in, completely incapable of moving and three other climbers decided to stay with them to shout for help when help arrived. Groom and Biderman would lead the others to Camp 4 and the relative safety of the tents there. So they're the first ones back, aside from the ones that left early. 
Yeah, right. Yep. Um, yeah. They um, might groom. Yeah. I was going to say, just to have to be a difficult decision to- To leave people. To leave people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, these guys are not well. Mm. We have to leave. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not, not something I have. I, I want to- No. I don't want to have do. to make that call. No. Um, Mike Groom, in an interview that I saw with him, he was like, yeah, I got in the tent. I remember them pulling ice off my face, like snapping ice off my face. Jeez. And then putting um, sleeping bags over me, and then I blacked out. Yeah, to get warm. Yeah. I just slept. Yeah. Wow. And in the meantime- You see that in the movies, like with people being cold and they've got like ice on their- That actually happens. Yeah. Like ice forms on on your face. Yeah. That's crazy. In the meantime- Anatoly Bukriev was at Camp 4 when they arrived, having already descended the mountain when he had no oxygen earlier. After helping them into the tents and tending to them, he left to mount a rescue attempt on those that were left at the South Coal. He did this alone. This is quite heroic. He went out into this blizzard on his own, trying to find these people when they had no idea where they were. They just know they were sort of 200 metres away. Um, And he finds them. He gets there. He finds the people calling out. But at this point... They have to make a decision. Yasuko Namba was part of this group and she's incapable of moving. Beck Weathers was also part of the group, but he couldn't be found. He was obviously not in the same huddle as everyone. Maybe the snow's coming over him. They can't find him. So they have to make the harrowing decision to leave those two at the site, essentially leaving them to die. This is the last people to get back to the tent before morning breaks. So now you've still got Rob Hall on the mountain. Doug Hansen's up there. Scott Fisher's out there. You've got Yasuko Namba and Beck Weathers all still out on the mountain. That's still so strange to me that they couldn't find this person. Like, yeah. You said, again, I'm not imagining a, a large path. No, I. it's weird, isn't so it? So how do you lose yeah. someone? Yeah. And I'd say they're wearing bright colours because- Yeah. Like, it's dark. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, I would imagine that he ended up with snow all over him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? But yeah, um, Yasuko Namba, still out there. Sad. Like today, still out there? No, I don't think so. Oh. We now make it to the 11th of May. So we've gone through the night. Bukriev's made it back. At 4.45 a.m. on the 11th, Adventure Consultants leader Rob Hall calls in to base. He's survived the night somehow at the South Summit. However, he's lost Doug Hansen. Doug Hansen has just disappeared. The theory is that he fell off the side of the mountain during the night while attempting to descend. Um, he still hasn't been found. Nobody knows where his body is. So he's the first confirmed death on the mountain. Rob Hall also couldn't use his oxygen mask as it had frozen over and the pipe supplying oxygen was completely blocked. By 9am, four hours later, he'd managed to fix his mask. However, his hands and feet were so frostbitten, he wasn't able to follow the ropes and make his way down the mountain. Resigned to his fate... He asks to be patched into his pregnant wife in New Zealand. They decided on the name of their child and knowing what was coming, he told her that he was comfortable. He said to her, sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much before ending the call. Shortly after, he would freeze to death. He would be the second confirmed death on the mountain that day. All I can say to that is oof. Big oof. Big oofs. That's, that's full on. That's Yeah. Even the like dramatic recreation that I saw, I was like, "Oh, really?" The, oh, yeah. Like the patching in and talking to the yeah. wife and stuff like that. It yeah, was right. part of uh, the seconds from disaster episode that I watched. 
And um, yeah, just not good stuff. Yeah, oof. Mm. A second attempt to save Yasuko Namba and Beck Weathers was launched. They were both found alive. However, they were barely responsive and severely frostbitten. After discussion between the search party, it was decided that they were not going to be able to save them. Their own condition and the condition of those in Camp 4 made it incredibly unlikely that anyone would be able to assist them down the mountain. Unfortunately, Namba would die on the mountain shortly afterwards. Miraculously, however, Weathers regained consciousness later that day and under his own power walked back to Camp 4, shocking everyone that was there. He had been left for dead and had now managed to walk himself back down the mountain to Camp 4. Unfortunately for him, on the 12th, a storm came through and damaged his tent, collapsing it completely over the top of him. The group again looked at this and thought that he was for sure dead. However, as they were planning to leave, somebody noticed that his tent was moving, and again they found him alive. He did, however, have severe frostbite on his nose and right hand, which had to be amputated, but he had survived. This dude... The man the mountain couldn't <laughs> kill, but everyone on it thought could. <laughs> Wait, you just said that. It's got me like Harry Potter flashbacks with Voldemort. The boy <laughs> who lived come to die. <laughs> That's insensitive. Yeah, man, this guy, crazy. Unbelievable, isn't He's it? He's been left for dead how many times? It was three. three. Yeah, they left him in the night. Yeah. They left him in the Come morning. Come back with the rescue party. He walks himself back in. Everyone's he, like, he's just, wow. Just woken up like, where is everyone? Oh. Oh, did these bastards leave me? <laughs> you left me. I just needed a nap. Yeah. <laughs> he's just had a power nap and just, he surged on through. I think my favourite part of it is the tent gets collapsed oh, in the storm. Yeah. And they don't even bother to check. check it. It's like, well, he dead. must be dead. He has to be dead. Can't have survived the that. The canvas has just fallen over. He's the dead. guy, The guy <laughs> that couldn't be killed by the elements, oh, definitely dead and have fallen over tent. He's dead for sure. Oh, don't even bother looking. Don't go over no. there, Anatoly. He's got nothing worth taking. We took that the last two times. We thought he was dead. <laughs> you got his wallet, right? Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Uh, and he survived. Yeah. Fully survived. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Badly damaged. Oh, really? His nose and uh, and hand, yeah. Nose completely gone. Like he's just got like a hole. Yeah, it was just black. Mm. Yeah, in the at least when I saw footage of him, yeah. But alive. Great. Yes, alive but damaged. Beck Weathers, the man who lived. <laughs> just. Mountain Madness leader Scott Fisher would be found by Sherpas some 400 metres above Camp 4, but was unresponsive and barely breathing. Again, they had to make the decision that he would be left there and he would die on the mountain later that day. In total, eight people would perish on the mountain that day. There were five from the Mountain Madness and Adventure Consultants group, along with a further three who died on the northern side. At this point, it was the worst day that there had ever been on the mountain, with the most deaths in a single day. Strangely, 1996 was actually a below-average death year for the mountain, with only one in seven people attempting the summit dying, which was... Much better than the one in four that normally died. Uh, But still, it was the worst single day. Uh, And 1996 is known as one of the worst seasons on the mountain. Terrible, terrible, terrible happenstance. But did you say moth? I did say moth. (laughs) (laughs) Moth. It was the moth people. (laughs) Yep. I speak good word. (laughs) Before before you laugh at me too much. 
Um, yeah, one in four people that climb the mountain die. Yeah, that's that's the reason. Yeah. That's the reason I don't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Want and to, um, what's the t- statistics like today? Do you know? Better than that. Okay, but um, still okay, incredibly come? dangerous. Yeah, I think since this, there's been two worst days on the mountain too. Yeah, right. There was one in I think it was like 2011, maybe 2014 as well. So why is this the most? Um, I think this one is just because this one's so famous because of all the stuff that went wrong that was preventable. Oh, okay. Um, and the storm as well. I think the other days that have been bad are like some of these elements. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but this one, and it was the worst at the time, so people remember it. There are some theories uh, as to why Rob Hall and Scott Fisher made these decisions. Um, why they didn't turn around, why they just kept pushing for the summit. So the leading for uh, the leading theory around this is hypoxia. Uh, essentially, they have less oxygen in their body. They start having um, effects that cause them to be confused. Um, they are weaker. Uh, essentially, everything that you don't want when you're climbing a mountain. Uh, and all of this leads to poor decision-making and an, an overestimation of your own abilities at the time. Um, particularly Scott Fisher... His lead Sherpas were said to claim that he'd been making some strange uh, requests and strange comments on his way up and down the mountain. Um, One was that he wanted to unclip himself from the guide rope and jump off the mountain. Uh, And another one was that he wanted a helicopter rescue, which anyone would know is impossible that high. Nobody had ever been uh, rescued off the mountain above base camp, the first base camp. So for Scott to ask this, he was obviously not in his right mind. When they found his body, they also found that he'd partially stripped. So he'd taken his upper body out of his clothing, um, which is a very common side effect of hypoxia. So that's one of the theories as to you know how this event uncurred and why these decisions were made. Um, obviously, contributing to this is the poor planning of the lead Sherpas being sent on their own. One of them going down meant that they couldn't do any of the rope laying that needed to be done. So... There you go. You immediately have a backup caused by these things and everyone's going to take longer and longer to climb the mountain. On top of this, you've got the competition of the two companies. So you've already got hypoxia. You know that your business relies on making it up the mountain with your clients and your competitors right beside you. That's another theory as to why these, uh, why these two made these decisions to climb as they did. Finally, there is Bukriev. A lot of people give Bukriev a lot of blame for what happened. Um, he was meant to be the leader of the team. He was meant to guide these people up and down. He was the most experienced. And for some reason, he didn't like using oxygen. So he had to leave. Keep in mind, though, he left a full hour and a half after the turnaround time. He's not the one making the decision on this turnaround time alone. There's a full group of people that are making these decisions to stay there. And then after everything's done... The climbers make it back to camp four and say there's still people out there and the first thing he does is head back out. I think he's been treated pretty unfairly by those that claim that he's had a contributing factor to these deaths. And the storm. I forgot to mention the storm in the theories bit. Oh, because, yeah. Because that's pretty obvious. Yep. Mm. Well, that's it, boy. That's it. Yeah. Thanks, boy. Thanks for telling that. It's, uh, it was still interesting the second time around. Yeah, it's a lot more fun for me the second time around because I'm not reading. <laughs> I preferred this way, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, just a little bit of background commentary on our episodes. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, no, it was very good. Thanks for that. Um, and people still do it today, which is yeah. like they know how dangerous it is. Do you know how much it costs to do it today? No. 
So you didn't look that up? No. Ah, shit planning. Shit research. <laughs> All right. Rip into me then. <laughs> you got your phone there? Do a Google. What I do know is that- Does a Googles. Does a Googles. Um, what I do know is that all guides have to have supplementary oxygen now. Oh, yeah. That was uh, not something I mentioned no. that I thought I had mentioned. because <laughs> you said we, that was the thing we were going to leave for later. That Yeah. Never. So, it, what was it? It was um, because old mate, um, Bukriev, went up with no oxygen. Yeah. Um, I guess, what, is it a law now or a, yeah. whatever? That, all guides all, have to have supplemental oxygen. Yeah. Um, so it's twenty eight thousand to eighty five thousand. Okay, so it's mm. really not that much difference in price. Some are cheaper, and yeah. So if you want to be a risk taker, it's twenty twenty eight thousand. Yeah, <laughs> with mountain madness. Okay, I take it they're still not in business. Uh, no, considering their leader died, yeah. I'd, I'd say no, they're mm, not. Okay, yeah. Anyway, um, good, good times. That's the uh, new style episode for this the week. Second new style <laughs> in episode. <a> <laughs> Uh, next week, I look forward to the clown episode where we're dressed as clowns. <laughs> What's that going to change? No one's going to- Nothing really. No yeah, one will okay, know, but enough. it's just for you and I. Yeah, It'll right, be then. a little bit more fun. <laughs> anyway, um, as always, hit us up on our socials uh, at Cheeky Tales Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for any supplemental content that you want to see. We'll have some photos up. No dead bodies, I promise. Um, yeah, we do post the, the, some photos of stuff. Um, we've also got a link- Link tree. To some videos that we've discussed. It was at uh, James Hunt's interview. James Hunt's great interview. Uh, and ja- both videos of James. Yeah. James Bull. Uh, There's a third one. What was the third one we put up? Oh, I don't know. Was it the spinny helicopter rescue? Yes, it yeah. might have been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know she got seriously injured. Still cracks me up. Still funny. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the so- socials, um, go to the ones that Aaron just mentioned. Uh, and if you could just, Give us some feedback. We'd appreciate that. Would love some feedback. Uh, we just recently had a listener from Yeld England. Sunny England. Contact us and just said, hey, guys, listening from England. That was nice. Like your work. I and appreciated that. That was that was lovely. So, yeah, uh, if you feel like it, it would be great just to hear some or we'll get some feedback on the socials. Yeah. Um, have a comment. Say have, what you thought. Have a comment. Uh, and I guess just I'm going to... Ask you to share the podcast again. We're going to shamelessly ask you to share. Uh, it's a good way for us to grow uh, a podcast to get more people listening. Uh, if you know anyone who you think might like it, who would like some interesting stories, uh, if they like Mount Everest, share it with someone who likes to mountain climb. Because I do know a lot of people like to go out for a weekend share walk. It. Maybe not the height of Everest or anything like that, but they go out for a weekend walk to some local places and. Yeah. Get some fresh air in the lungs, which is great. Share it with someone who likes snowy adventures. Yeah. Who likes the snow? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, in all honesty, if you could, that would help us out a lot. Get our um, listener base to Bigger. grow. Uh, and also, while you're at the socials, if you've got any ideas. Yeah, we'd love to hear your ideas for episodes. For a cheeky tale. Jazz, the Captain Cook episode is coming. Uh <laughs> It is coming. It's just a lot of his life needs to be researched. He's done all. He he he, he might have done a little bit. He did a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, he actually did a lot, didn't he? A lot of bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's wrap it up, boy. All right. Um, boy. Thank you, as always, for listening, everyone, and we hope to see you next fortnight. Yes. Thank you for listening. Uh, and just one final thought. Thank you for your work, boy. This has been difficult on you. Thank you. This week to get this episode out. So yeah. 
appreciate you. I just come and record. You do all the editing and most of the social media posts. So I appreciate all your hard work you put into this podcast, boy. Cheers, boy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, be my episode in two weeks. Uh, what was this topic that you said you're going to do? I'm going to do King Henry VIII. Nice. So, The guy who loved food and beheading wives. And killing wives. Yep. So we'll catch you then. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Radical! <laughs> Mad- Mad- Mad-